The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do this morning, open them up to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13 this morning. On the final day of the year, as we reflect back upon a year that is finishing, of course, in, in expectation of the year that is to come. Uh, it is a time where many are reflecting, many are planning, making resolutions. There's, there's much that you could preach on on a Sunday like this morning. Uh, but I have chosen, God's led me this morning, to continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, especially as I was studying what verses come next. This passage we're going to look to this morning as we have walked verse by verse now. Uh, for some 40, 41 weeks, we had been navigating our way through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, studying it verse by verse, learning about Christ, about Matthew, uh, inspired of the Holy Spirit to present to us the life of Christ, that we may come to realize He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that He truly is the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited Savior who gave His life a ransom on Calvary for us. Uh, we have been learning much about His life learning much about who he is and, and all of this leading to what he came to do, the cross. Uh, but the passage that we're looking to this morning speaks so powerfully, so powerfully about what true Christianity is, so powerfully to really what the secret to true religion is, a pure religion, as James would write of, that's undefiled before God and the Father, that the, 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 he describes it as to, to uh, take care of the widow and uh, orphan and their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That, that sort of religion that is true from God, that is true in experience and in, in doctrine, in the way that we believe and in the way that we, we live, I think the secret to such a, a true Christianity is encapsulated so well in the words that Christ gives to us here in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. The truth that we're going to look at this morning saves us from two great errors that I have seen so often in Christian living. Uh, two great errors that you and I actually fall into quite often, if we're honest, in examination of our life uh, regarding our own Christian living. Uh, what one can be defined by the fictional character that I'm going to call Larry Legalist. Larry Legalist. Larry Legalist is extremely religious. Larry is a devout follower of Jesus, at least that's what he wants everyone to know. He wants everyone to see that he is a Christian. And Larry lives a very, very disciplined life, a spiritually disciplined life. Larry guards his language. He guards his mouth. Larry dresses respectfully. Larry is sure to never go anywhere or be around anyone or anything that, that might lead to people questioning his testimony, that might lead people to think, well, maybe he's not quite the, the believer that we thought that he was. Larry doesn't go to Disney and he doesn't shop at Target. His business tagline is, you can trust me, I'm a Christian. He's got it written on his, his work truck. Because he, he advertises his Christianity and wants all to know it. By, by most appearances, Larry seems like a legit Christian. 
He seems like a very devout, religious man. Except when you really get to know Larry. When you really see Larry's heart. What you realize is something is not quite right. That, that there's, there's something missing in his Christianity. That there's, there's no humility in his life whatsoever. That honestly, as you get to know him, there's this sort of Christian smugness. This sort of spiritual elitism, so, so to speak. You realize that there's not much compassion in his heart. That really he'd never admit it, but, but honestly, if he were to examine his heart, he, he would come to find that he's really embraced this this idea of a sense of, the, the, of retribution, the principle of retribution. That is, that you get what you deserve. And so he, he kind of, he, he, he believes he's walked with the Lord for so long, and he's gotten so good at living the Christian life that, that, that he begins to think he is who he is because of who he is and what he does. And therefore he looks at others, and, and though he'd never admit it, he, he begins to think they are who they are because of who they are and what they've done. And therefore, there's not much compassion. It's kind of like when he looks at those that he ought to have compassion towards. Well, they made their bed. Uh, they need to lie in it. And though, again, he'd never admit it, sometimes he can look at those to whom he should have compassion, and he looks at them like often even with disgust because he sees them because of their decisions they've made, because of the consequences they're under because of their decisions. Legalism, I would say, is kind of like an overzealous religion. That, that you become so right in what you're doing, and you do it for so long that you begin to think you are righteous. And, and again, though you'd never admit it, you start to think you're worthy of Christ, and you're worthy of the, the grace that you've been shown. You've, you've rigidly kept the rules of what you ought to do and what you ought not to do, and you even begin to look at people who are in sin with, with disgust instead of compassion. Larry Legalist. What about not only Larry Legalist on one side of the ditch, but the other side of the ditch would be Rita Ritualist. Some of you think you're watching VeggieTales this morning. you got Larry Legalist and you got Rita Ritualist. Some of you are looking at me like you don't even know what VeggieTales are. Shame on you. Rita Ritualist. Rita lives with her boyfriend. Rita dresses immodestly but doesn't think anything about it because it's her body and that's not her problem. Rita watches all the movies and listens to all the music and reads all the feeds that have all sorts of wickedness and profanity and crudeness in them. And yet Rita loves going to church. She shows up and she lifts her hands high and she loves the experience of praise and worship. It makes her feel so good to be in the, 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 the just group of people singing and praising. And, and Rita has found a church where, where uh, the messages are always uplifting and encouraging and positive, like how to live your best life now. And, and Rita goes away encouraged and uplifted to face the week that is at hand. See, ritualism, I would call empty religion. 
It's a sort of religiosity that believes I can live however I want to live and do anything I want to do. And, and God's really not concerned about that as long as I'm nice to people and, and you know, go to church every now and then and, and kind of do the things that God really wants, like going to church or maybe being uh, generous to some people in, in need. But, but as far as my day-to-day life, I can do what I want, how I want, when I want, and the self-expression culture that we live in, and, and it's okay. Uh, read a ritualist, ritualism. We do what we do because it's religion, but it doesn't affect us in our day-to-day living. Empty religion. I've seen a lot of Rita ritualists and a lot of Larry legalists in my own life. And if I'm honest in my own life, I've been both of those at times, as have you. I don't want, I don't know about you, but I don't want that sort of fake Christianity. I don't want that empty religion of legalism or ritualism. I really do want the religion that James speaks of that's pure and undefiled before the Father, that has a true compassion for the orphan and the widow and their affliction, and also keeps oneself unspotted from the world. How do we find such a Christianity? How do we find such a faith? Matthew chapter Nine. Before we begin reading in verse 9, I need to introduce to you some of the characters we're about to read about. Because the people in Jesus' day would have definitely understood some things about the people we're about to read about. One is the, the tax collectors. And the tax collectors were a hated group of people, as they are in this day and age. No, anybody work for the IRS in here? I hope not. Um, Imagine, you know, we can speak with disgust that anybody that just works for the IRS in a system and a government that is mostly fair and equal, at least striving to be that. We won't get into any debates over that this morning, but striving to be that. A government of the people, by the people, for the people. And yet paying taxes is still a burden at times, is it not? Imagine for a moment that, that we were actually not our own free country, but... Let's just say China had come in and we lost in a battle to China where it was a gross war and many lives were lost. China wins out and they have set up their government over us. We have no concept. I don't of what that would ever be like. It's hard to even imagine it. Imagine if they set up their governing officials who were over us. Imagine if they set up a heavy, heavy tax system over us that was truly extremely burdensome over us. That alone is a great difficulty. But then imagine if there were some of us even amongst this group who betrayed us by going and working for them and becoming their IRS tax agents, knowing that, that it's a betrayal of our country, it's a betrayal of our friendship, of, of, of the even friendship that we have, that you would turn against us to go and work for them. Now, the, the offense the Jews was even greater because to turn against Jerusalem was to turn against God even because it was a theocracy. This was the law of God and the the government body even of God over His people for what Israel was. And so so to turn against uh, the the, um, Jews in that day to become a Roman tax collector, to turn against your own was not only a great offense as a traitor, but it was even to be a heretic because you were turning against God. 
You were turning against the the religion that that was the one true religion in the sense that God had commanded these things of of, of His people and of Jerusalem. And so they viewed it not only as a a traitor for financial gain, but but also as a, a heretic because you've turned against the Lord by doing so. And on top of it all, most of these tax collectors would also line their pockets. They would... They, they would commit robbery through charging an even heavier tax than what Rome was collecting in order to, to stuff their own pockets with the money because they had the authority to collect it. And so you, you might owe uh, a, a $10,000 tax, but I'm going to charge you 15000 and I'm putting five in my pocket and giving ten to, to, to Roman authorities. And the tax collectors were notorious for doing this. So, so when you hear the word tax collector... As Matthew was a tax collector, and as these people that come around Matthew and Jesus were tax collectors, you need to realize the absolute disgust that people had for them. They hated these people. They were traitors, they were heretics, and they were thieves. Sinners. Sinners is a broad, general term. We are all sinners. But when the Bible speaks of sinners here as a cultural sort of name given to a group of sinners. This was a special group of sinners. This was a group of sinners that went beyond the typical normal calling out of people being sinners. Like we would all say we are all sinners. Even the Pharisees would admit they were sinners in need of of redemption. That's what the sacrifices were for. But they would say, I am not a sinner like this sinner that we're talking about in the passage we're about to read. These were people that were known as the sinners of sinners. These were people who had sinned to such a degree that everybody knew about it, and these people were actually ostracized for it. They were kicked out of normal, everyday culture and society because of what they had done. It was to such an offense that they were known by their great sin, and they had no other option but to be friends with other sinners that were cast out. Outcasts got to cling together. And so the tax collectors were hated and despised and rejected. And these great groups of sinners that, that had sinned so grievously, and everybody knew about it so much so that they'd say, no, I'm not eating dinner with you. No, you're not coming to my house. There you are on that side of the road. I'm walking on the other side of the road. This was a group of tax collectors and a group of people like that, sinners. And then a third group of people that we're going to read about are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They they were the top spiritual figures of the day. They were the ones that knew the law inside and out. They were the ones who strictly adhered to the law in their lives. Like they had this external righteousness where they did a whole long list of things in accordance to what they thought was in keeping with the law, and they did a whole bunch of, didn't do a whole bunch of things that they would say was against the law. And not only did they strictly keep these things, they also enforced it upon others. And so when a Pharisee came around, you made sure, more so than even when the preacher comes around, you know, I know how it is when the preacher, oh, there's a preacher, i gotta, I got to quit cussing. Oh, there's a, that sort of mentality that you have with a preacher, it was way worse with the Pharisees because the Pharisees would call you out. And the Pharisees could actually bring an accusation that brought uh, a judicial punishment against you if they saw you doing something against the law. That was who the Pharisees were. They were the religious elite. They were the ones that everybody thought were the most spiritual in Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. We all know Matthew was a tax collector. 
And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've got a longer introduction this morning. I need to lay a deep foundation to build the house of the sermon that we will get to and quickly conclude with this morning. But, but we've got some groundwork to do. And since the footers have been dug, but, but I need to pour the concrete in. I need to pour a foundation that the, the house will, will sit upon, will be built upon. And so you realize as you read verse 13, Jesus is quoting something. But go and learn what this means. Quotation marks. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That is a quotation from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. And we're going to lay the foundation, a foundational understanding of what Jesus is quoting here before we try to apply it and see it in the context of the way in which Jesus is using it. Hosea chapter 6. I want us to begin in verse 1. But understand the story of Hosea. It's one of the most interesting life stories of the prophets in the Old Testament. A number of the prophets, their lives would actually become living illustrations before the people. Their, their lives and what God would command of them would, would actually be a pictorial demonstration of the message that they were proclaiming. None more so than that of Hosea. Hosea was commanded of God to take a wife who was adulterous. She was a harlot. He was to marry this woman, as he did under the command of God, and give to her his undevoted commitment and love, that he would be her husband and she would be his wife. Now, as was expected, this woman, who was a woman of harlotry, committed more harlotry. She committed adultery on him. She left him. She lived such a life that led her into such great financial debt, she became a slave. In that day and age, if you accumulated a great financial debt, uh, slavery was the way in which you paid it off, she literally became a slave, and Hosea was commanded of God to go redeem her, go purchase her back to himself, and to restore her, and to love her as if she had never done any of those things. And he did so. 
All of this was a vivid, powerful picture of the love of God for His people, that though they had committed adultery on Him by turning to all of this wickedness and all of this sin and all of this idolatry, God's love would never fail them. That God, even through the discipline He would pour out upon them, was doing a work by which He would draw His people back unto Himself. He would redeem them. He would restore them. He would renew them. And so that is the life of the prophet Hosea. That is the, the story unfolding in this book. That is the message of God's faithful love that is being conveyed through Hosea. And we re- read in chapter 6, verse 1, and, and, and Hosea is writing with this cry for God's people to realize their sin and come back to God. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn, but He will heal us. He is stricken, but He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. A little seed picture of even the resurrection there. That we may live in His sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. There was a call to repentance, but the people of God didn't heed this call. And so he says, O Ephraim, one of the tribes of Israel that was one of the predominant tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, he says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, the southern kingdom, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the word of my mouth, and your judgments are like light that goes forth. And then in verse 6 he says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And so there's parallelism going on here. In Hebrew, a form of, of, of poetry in Hebrew is parallelism, where, where one line is redefined by the second line, and they go hand in hand to just further express what's being said. For I desire mercy and the knowledge of God. Those go hand in hand to, to know the, the mercy of God is to have a knowledge of God. And he says, not sacrifice. And here, strictly speaking, in the Old Covenant, right here with the context of what they're doing, burnt offerings. See, they thought it was alright to do whatever they wanted to do and live however they wanted to live and worship whoever they wanted to worship as long as they went to the temple and were making their sacrifices. As long as they were continuing this superficial worship of God there in the temple, they thought I could worship Baal and I could do whatever I wanted and let injustice reign and rule in the culture and in the society and, 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 and commit all the wicked immoralities that they were committing. And God says, no, you don't understand. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I, I desire that you truly know me and not just offer these superficial sacrifices, these burnt offerings to but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy and not sacrifice. Sacrifices were an act of offering to God something that was supposed to be precious to them. A sacrifice is a work 
of our own doing. It's a work of our own hands in the sense that we're, we're giving something up. We're, we're making a sacrifice before the Lord. Loosely, I think we could call a parallel word to, to, to sacrifice here religion as we think about it. Religion, our, our defined generally as like man's way of getting to God. It's a bad definition of religion. That many people turn to religion in an effort to, to make things better in their life. They're thinking that by their own doing, by their own sacrificing, that they can justify themselves. That they can make themselves better. That they can earn their way into heaven. That they can restore their relationship with God. And so religion would, would go hand in hand in that definition of religion with, with this term sacrifice. That God desires mercy, not merely religion, but merely Sacrifice, not merely burnt offering. Now the word for mercy here in the Old Testament in Hebrew is the Hebrew word hesed. Now I know I went to seminary and the word is actually begins with this letter in Hebrew that's a guttural sound that sounds like you're gargling hesed. Now we don't we don't talk that way in English, and I definitely don't talk that way in Southern uh, United States English, and so I'm just going to say hesed. Thank you. Hesed in the Bible is a word that deals with God's unending covenantal love, His faithful love. It's translated in the Bible a number of different ways. His steadfast love, His loving kindness, His compassion, His faithfulness, His mercy, all all entangled in this word hesed. God's covenantal, this is a good description of, of, of what hesed love is, God's covenant relationship with His people results in His loyal love and faithfulness. His chesed, even when His people are unfaithful to Him. Always at the heart of chesed lies God's generous sense of compassion and grace and mercy. Chesed surpasses ordinary kindness and friendship. It is the inclination of the heart to show amazing grace to the one who is loved. It runs deeper than social expectations and responsibilities or fluctuating emotions or what is deserved or earned by the recipient. Hesed finds its home in committed, familial love, and it comes to life in action. I need you to understand as we dive into this word of, of Jesus where he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That, that, that the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of redemptive history, of God's work with humanity, deals with God bringing people into an understanding of this truth, that He desires mercy. That, that what He truly desires is not that mankind would make some sacrifice, that not that mankind would find some sort of religion, but what He is working to accomplish is that humanity would come to a place where they know Him, where they know His mercy, where they understand His love to such a degree that, that we may be able to say, God, You are my God, and God, I am your child. We are your people. That's the story of the Bible. God taking and creating even. We could go so deep and we don't have time and I don't have the ability to convey it all even. It, the, 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 why, why would God create Adam and Eve who, who, who He knows are going to sin? Have you ever wondered that before? Like, like if God knew Adam and Eve would sin and rebel against Him, why create 
I created all. It's a question that many think they've thought about, and many have come have given good answers, some of which I'll share with you now. Why would God create humanity all if He knew Adam and Eve would sin, and He knew that it would cost His Son in order to redeem them? The, the, the reality is, the, the great truth here gives us the reasoning that God desired, even in the work of creation, knowing all that it would entail, that He would create for Himself a people who would know Him to such a degree that is only capable if sin existed. To know mercy. It can only be known if we, we have the need for mercy. We sing a song that the angels can't sing. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The angels know nothing of God in that sort of way. They don't know what it is to be redeemed. They don't know the mercy of God. But you and I, who are sinners and who come to experience what is is unbelievable, that that God who is holy and just would work in such a way to provide the sacrifice that we couldn't provide in order that we might be forgiven and redeemed and given eternal life. Like we know God in the mercy of God, in a way that even the angels who are in the the presence of His glory do not. Romans 9 talks about it. Why did God create the vessels fitted for destruction? And maybe He wanted to show His glory on some. There's a great mystery in it all. There is. The Bible through the Old Testament is filled with this love of God. That word has said appears over 250 times. I want to point you to just some of the, just some, a couple of them. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This grand revelation of God to Moses, his prophet, this first great prophet who would be the one used to free God's people from, from Egypt. The Lord passed before him on Mount Sinai, and this is God giving a self-revelation. This isn't even Moses revealing God to us. This is God speaking to Moses. This is who I, I am. It says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. And where does he begin? Merciful and gracious. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in chesed. Abounding in Hesed and truth, keeping Hesed, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. God will punish those who don't repent, but, but that's not his heart's desire. God's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is the God that cries out in Ezekiel 33:11. He says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked turn. And he cries out to his people, turn, Israel, turn. Because he's a God who delights in mercy. He's a God who delights when, when sinners come to an understanding. There's nothing they can do to earn his favor or his salvation, but out of the goodness of who he is and his righteous love and his steadfast love and his grace and in his mercy, he provides a way for sinful people to be restored to him. That's the God of the Scripture. Lamentation, verse 3, or 23 rather, of chapter 3. It says, through the Lord's mercies, through the Lord's said, 
We are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then a few verses later in verse 32, it says, Though He causes grief, yet He will show compassion according to the multitude of His chesed, the multitude of His mercies. Read Psalm 136 and it repeats over and over and over again, For His mercy endures forever. For His chesed endures forever. The Old Testament culminates in the greatest revelation of the mercy of God, that He does not desire sacrifice. He does not need our sacrifice. And He evidences this by showing us His mercy. How? What happens? What do we just celebrate? Jesus Christ comes. He provides the sacrifice. He doesn't need your sacrifice. We need His sacrifice. And the sacrifice serves ultimately to point us to the greater, the greater reality. Not the sacrifice, but the God behind the sacrifice. The mercy of God for sinners, for you and for me. That for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. It's a, a revelation of, of the chesed, love of God. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Alright, the foundation has been laid, the concrete is poured, and now, in about 10-15 more minutes, I want to build the house. Here it is. God doesn't need your worship. God doesn't need you. God is not lacking in His glory. And He needs you in order to be glorified. God, God does not need your songs. God does not need your tithes and offerings. God does not need you living for Him. God does not need your worship. But hear me, He wants you to know His mercy. He, he delights in you coming to experience Him. His, his mercy, His love that He has for you. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Therefore, first of all, going back to Matthew chapter 9, receive God's mercy. Receive it. Believe upon it. Embrace it wholeheartedly. Receive God's mercy. It's all that you can do. You can't earn it. You can't strive for it. You simply receive the mercy He has for you. Let it heal the sinner in you. This story reveals for us the great mercy of God for the worst of worst sinners. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was one who was hated because he was a, a traitor, he was a heretic, and he was a thief. And yet Christ in His mercy looks to him and says, Follow me. And Matthew leaves it all to follow after him. And then as this group of people who were so hated and despised and outcast 
heard of Jesus, this great rabbi, this great teacher, teacher who had done so many miracles, and many were saying even as the Messiah was, was there amongst them, they all gather near him. These many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him, and he wasn't one who said, get away from me, sinner, get away from me, tax collector. He, he ate with them, and the Pharisees saw it, and the Pharisees cried out, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? says to the other disciples, who is your master? What is he doing? Doesn't he know who these people are? That's when Jesus says those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, but sinners to repentance. You realize this morning, God does not need your righteousness. God does not need your religion. God does not need your sacrifice. God does not need what you think you can do for Him. You can't do anything for Him. And your righteousness is as filthy rags before Him, Jeremiah says. You you can't make a sacrifice that's worthy of the favor of God. But God, in His love and in His grace and in His mercy, He accomplished a way. He did it. Why? Because He's merciful. And he he extends a call to any and all who would come, even the tax collectors, even the worst of worst sinners. And he says, I haven't come to call the righteous. I haven't come to call those that think they're all right. But I've come for those who realize they're not all right. There's a good saying, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And the sooner you realize that, the sooner you are in a place where you can come to this God and you can receive rightly His grace and rightly His mercy. Because if you come to Him thinking you're bringing something to Him, if you come to Him thinking that that you're earning something from Him, you're full and you're getting nothing. You don't receive His mercy in that way, in that light. You only receive this mercy when you realize, I am the tax collector. I am the sinner of all sinners. I am unworthy. I am rightly condemned before Him. But thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that you provided the sacrifice that no sacrifice I can make would ever accomplish it. The story of the Gospel is God's story of Him doing it all for us to show to us His mercy. He sent Jesus to die upon a cross to bear the penalty we could not pay. He is the one who can forgive and redeem and give to us eternal life. Jeremiah has prophesied about it through Jeremiah even. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this. Well, what is it that we ought to be glorying in this morning? Let him who glories glories in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord exercising chesed. Exercising loving kindness. Judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight. God delights in you, sinner, just coming to a place where you understand how merciful He is. 
where you come to a place of understanding His great love for you, that He would give His only begotten Son upon a cross to redeem you, that He provided the way, that He made the sacrifice. And all that you can do is come to Him in a sense of unworthiness and humility and simply receive His grace, receive His mercy. Are you here this morning trying to earn it? Are you here this morning thinking that you can achieve it? Come to God and receive His mercy. Receive His mercy even, even if you're the group of sinners defined here that everybody knows just how bad your sin is. Maybe nobody knows how bad it is but you. And you think, my goodness, God can never forgive me. Yes, He can because it's not about you. It's not about how little or how big your sin. Maybe the atoning work of Christ covers all of our sin least to the greatest. Come to Christ. Receive God's mercy. Let it heal the sinner in you. Secondly, then share God's mercy. Share God's mercy. Let it kill the Pharisee in you. See, the Pharisees didn't like what they saw when this great teacher was sitting with tax collectors and sinners. Pharisees relied upon their works to validate their position before God. They, they, they staked their whole lives on their, their rigid way of living and, and their external righteousness that they showed before all being a righteousness that, that, that would save them someday. God looked at them and It was to them that Jesus says these words, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That they knew nothing of the true mercy of God, and therefore they didn't have any mercy to show to others. That it really is only those who have been shown and experienced this great mercy of God who who truly can have mercy for other people. Realize this morning that God God is not commanded of us to be this group of self-serving people doing all that we do in order to earn our way into heaven, in order to earn His forgiveness. There's a lot of people that have a religion like that, and they only do what they're doing because they think, by doing this, I am going to earn my way into heaven. I'm going to earn the forgiveness of God, and that's really a fake mercy. If I'm if I'm you know, being generous to a person in need and I'm only doing it because I know I believe it's going to ultimately save me, that's a self-centered action. Even though it may have a superficial appearance of being merciful. God has not commanded us to be a group of self-serving people doing all that we do in order to earn His favor and our way into heaven. Nor has He commanded us to be a group of self-righteous people doing all that we do in order to show just how good we are. There's another group of people that they don't think I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing in order to get to heaven. I have done these things so long that I am good. They're like, I need to show just how righteous I am. And I do what I do now just to reveal to others that I truly am of God, that I truly am a, a Christian. That's not true mercy. That's spiritual arrogance. God has not made us to be a group of self-serving people trying to earn salvation. He's not made us to be a group of self-righteous people just showing off our righteousness. You you know who God has called together in this room, in this place, with these people that we come together and call the, the church? 
God has called us to be a group of forgiven people. God has called us to be a group of people who have realized God desires mercy and not sacrifice. I, I can't do it on my own. I, I, I am not good enough, and there's nothing I can do to make myself good enough, but, but I have come to know the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God. He has forgiven my every sin. He has blotted out my every iniquity. He knows the deepest, worst, dark thing I've done, and yet He gave His Son to redeem me, to forgive me of it. With Him, there's, there's mercy. And if you truly come to a place of experiencing that, if you truly get to that place of knowing God and His mercy in such a way as that, you will have mercy for other people. And it won't be a superficial, fake mercy that's only being shown in order to earn your way in heaven or to show how good you are. Only, only when you've experienced the mercy of God can you have the freedom to truly be merciful. Because you're not trying to show off your righteousness. Because you know you're not righteous. And you're not trying to earn your way into heaven. Because you know you can't earn your way into heaven. But you've come to realize God's done it all for me. And He's forgiven me. He has saved me. Now I can just live in the freedom of that. I can live in the the rest. Resting in that. The comfort of that. The security of that. And I truly can have a heart that's merciful towards a sinner. Towards a person in need. John, in 1 John, verses 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this is love, that that God was manifested towards us, that, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There it is. John's unfolding it for us. He's unpacking it for us. That, that if we really know the love of God that was revealed for us in Jesus giving His life a ransom on a cross for us, we've really come to know God and experience Him in such a way, you will love one another. You cannot help but have mercy for other people. Show the mercy, share the mercy of God that it might kill the Pharisee that is in you. Receive wholeheartedly the mercy of God And then in the power of His mercy, have mercy on all those who are around you, who are in desperate need of a Savior. How about it, Larry Legalist? We're closing. You can shut your Bible. How about it, Larry Legalist? Maybe you're here this morning only because it's a part of your rigid spiritual disciplines. You've heard it put well, Christians go to church, and so you're in church in order to show and validate you're a Christian. And here's the bottom line truth of some people's religion. As long as you've got the man you want in the White House, and stone tablets in your hand that are chiseled with the Ten Commandments, you're good got a word for you. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What about it, Rita 
rituals. You're only here this morning because it feels good to be in church. And you've really got no conviction over a number of things in your life that you know aren't right with God. You know there's a lot you're doing, a lot you're watching, a lot you're you're involved with that, that isn't of God, and yet you think that God is pleased because you're here, because you sang a song, or because you listened to a sermon. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Pure religion and undefiled is this. To what? To take care of the widow and orphan and their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Heavenly Father, I pray that You of Your Spirit would take Your Word and open our hearts to it that we might not merely be hearers of Your Word but doers of Your Word. Lord, we would not be a group of people who are legalistic, that we would not be a group of people who are ritualistic. Lord, that we would be a group of people who are merciful because we have come to know You, the God of mercy, the God of said love, the God who has given Your own Son to redeem us and save us. Lord, guard our hearts from self-righteousness. Guard our hearts from spiritual pride and arrogance as we look to a new year that lies ahead. Lord, may it be a year of Your mercy. Lord, of waking up in Your mercy that never fails, of living every day in that mercy, of showing that mercy. So many people around us who need it. So many people around us who are lost and dying on their way to hell, who are living under the misery of their sin, and we have the keys to heaven. Lord, we have the gospel. We know Christ. We know your love and mercy. Help us, Lord, to be merciful. Show your mercy to a lot of people that need it. Lord, help us to be merciful to one another. Lord, even as we wrong one another, as we do in our flesh, that we would be quick to forgive, slow to anger. Lord, pray if there be anyone here that's never come to you and received your mercy, that even now in this invitation, they would, that they would come to realize you have made the sacrifice. They don't have to sacrifice. They can't sacrifice the sacrifice that's worthy of their salvation. You've done it all for them. They, they just simply have to come and receive